Welcome to On Democracy with F.P. Wellman. I'm your host, Fred Wellman, right here in your usual suspect places on the On Democracy channel, as well as Midas Touch. I always say up front to be sure, like, say hi. I am doing a special episode this week with you guys because of the many things going on in the world, but specifically about the Ukraine crisis. I had been trying to get one of our, well, actually both our guests on. We have two guests today, which makes it special. Uh, I, with President Zelensky visiting DC and the terminal on Capitol Hill about the foreign aid packages for both Ukraine and our friends in Israel, uh, I kind of wanted to focus in on those. Uh, and we have a really great package of guests. I mean, the, it's an incredibly dangerous moment in the world as the war rages on both Ukraine and Gaza. Political turmoil is causing all kinds of questions. And I hadn't revisited the situation in Ukraine, I think, since we had Alex Vimman on the show, frankly, it's been, or Ben Hodges. Ben Hodges was on the show. So, so I, with, with, with the president, um, Mr. Zelensky, visiting and the, and, the, and the Congress going on, I really wanted to reach out. So I got lucky. I got two great guests. Uh, and what you'll hear from today is Tim Mack, who is an actual journalist who's been in Ukraine since actually before the invasion. He was with NPR, and now he's with his own organization, The Counteroffensive. And he's got such a wonderful perspective of what life is on the ground for Ukrainians and writing about the the, the, the larger stories for the view of individual story uh, uh, characters, which is really terrific, the counteroffensive. And then we're going to sh shift after Tim over to D.C. And I got an opportunity. I'm really excited about to speak with Deputy National Security Council spokesperson Sean Savette. So to kind of get the, big, the bigger picture of what's going on in D.C. And, and where we face and the danger we face with this MAGA House Republicans and the, and the Senate Republicans who are resisting uh, aiding our allies and what that means to the United States. So really kind of a cool show. I hope you'll enjoy it. Uh, it's not our usual laughing, laughing. <laughs> We're not going to do a ton of laughing because these are very serious issues. I mean, uh, the death and the, and the violence going on in Ukraine is very serious. The political game that's being played is also very serious. But I think you're going to find this an incredibly educational show and you'll walk away with armed the information you need to have these conversations with your fellow Americans about what is the danger of not supporting our allies and and what is the danger from the, the Republicans in their uh, manipulations of our foreign aid to others and, and using the border crisis as a tool to end that aid so without further ado let's get on the music and get on the show Welcome back. This is On Democracy to FP Woman. Man, it's so great to have you. I told you we have a special show this week focusing on Ukraine. The timing couldn't be better. Uh, Mr. Zelensky is in, in D.C. as we as we're as we're recording this show. Uh, and I've been wanting to talk to our first guest for a while now, Tim. Tim Mack and I go way back. Tim, of course, this is an overview interview. Welcome to the show. has been an on-the-ground almost continuously since before the invasion began in Ukraine. He's traveled the country extensively with NPR and now with his own own website and substack called The Counteroffensive. He's a former investigative correspondent, as I mentioned. We go way back to, I think uh, we said 2012 or so when you're with Politico. We were doing defense stuff, Tim. And of course, yeah, most importantly so. for me as a fellow veteran, you are a former U.S. Army combat medic. Man, Tim, it's so great to connect to you. Coming to us live from Kiev, right? That's right. Um, it's pretty late and cold out here. Uh, <laughs> There are a lot of power outages lately, so it's you know it's, it's chilling even inside, and you know it's 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 been a crazy time here. We can talk about this now, or we can talk about it later. Oh, no, go right into but it. It's yeah, been, it's it's just kind of a wild it's a wild situation in Kiev right now, just because there was a Russian hack. I mean, Americans talk all the time about cybersecurity over and over and over again, but you know this war has led so many kind of modern military developments, the development of drone warfare. Now we're seeing cybersecurity 
being used or the lack of cybersecurity or cyber attacks being used as a weapon of war in real time. Yeah. Right? So I'm in Kiev. The Russians have hacked Kyivstar, which is the main or the top telecommunication provider in Ukraine. And that has left people basically blind. You know, you, you wow. think about how important internet and communications are to your daily life. And here in Ukraine, now we're on, we're, we're ending day two without internet access for a lot of people who rely on Kyivstar for cell phone or home internet access. And there's real world safety effects to this, right? So when uh, Russian planes launch or missiles launch, uh, Ukraine also responds to try to keep its civilians safe by putting out this alert on apps uh, that says, hey, there's an air alert. You got to seek shelter. Yep. Without internet, that doesn't happen. Wow. Here's where that kind of wells together in this terrible, terrible catastrophe. Just this morning, there were a number of attacks in Kyiv. So dozens of people were injured uh, as a result of these attacks. And they weren't able to get, or many of them weren't able to get the alerts that they needed to seek shelter in an air raid, um, uh, in a hardened structure, air raid shelter, uh, because they didn't have the information they needed to respond to the attacks. I mean, this is what's going on. Um, it's been kind of a wild 24 hours here in Kiev. Yeah, and and so I appreciate you being able to join us. I, I, I was wondering if I'd be able to hear from you because I knew I heard about this. And and the thing about I enjoy about what you're so so you've got the counteroffensive, which is terrific. I, I tell my we'll we'll post the the link to it on the show here because it's just been terrific. You striking on your own and with the team to tell the stories and and what, something you said in a previous interview and and it kind of goes to what we're saying here is is you wanted to tell a deeper story of the human side of this. And, and you just explained that there's a human side to the war. We hear a lot about you know weapons transfers. We hear a lot about the latest press conferences from the president or troop movements or the counteroffensive itself. But as I read your stories, and I have been a subscriber for a while here, is it's more of a, a depth of the human story. Your Christmas story of the mother who's waiting for her son, who's been a prisoner of war for, what, 19 months, I think, is a great picture of what you're doing. What's driving you to seek that different kind of a journalism? And and what is your goal with telling those stories to, and, and for Americans especially? Well, you know, a lot of people have pointed out this, this issue of, and you're seeing this in the US Congress too, right. right? This issue of Ukraine fatigue. And it's easy to turn away for things that are, that are um, presented in a boring manner. And so, we were trying when we launched the counteroffensive, which you can read at counteroffensive.news, we were trying to do a slightly different kind of journalism where we put the human stories first. So they're personality driven. They're, they're really about taking a character who's going through the news rather than the news itself. So, for example, we don't talk about, oh, there were, you know, uh, drone attacks in Kiev overnight. We take you to the place where that happened and tell the story of the attack through, from the perspective, through the eyes of the person who actually experienced that. Yeah. Um, and we're hoping to, to take a more holistic approach to what war correspondence really can be um, and, and fight this idea of Ukraine fatigue by writing these compelling stories, these personal stories that would be interesting to people, regardless of whether they were set in Ukraine or anywhere else in the world. And, you know, our, our goal is to 
really uh, write these engaging stories about people who are threatened by authoritarianism. So we've started here. Our team is headquartered in Kiev. We're launching, you know, a Taiwan supplemental monthly supplemental issue wow. starting next year. Um, we're really trying to broaden and, and, and show people this is what it's like on the front lines of the battle for democracy all around the world and make it more personal for people in the United States or Canada or the UK, where it feels sometimes like it's really far away. And when you, when you cover the news, um, when you cover the news and the Ukraine war is, is like, Oh, well, you know, today the front line moved from this village you've never heard of to another village you haven't ever heard of. Yeah. That's not personal or engaging. It's not really going to grab your attention. But, you know, as you mentioned, our most recent story is about this woman, Arena, who's talking in this incredibly moving way. We met her as she was marching, protesting, demonstrating for the return of her son, who's a prisoner of war who had been she had been uh, he had been captured um, uh, after the siege at, as, at Azovstal in Mariupol at this famous siege where uh, Ukrainian troops tried to hold out as long as they could. Um, spent nearly three months surrounded by a much larger Russian force. So Arena is talking about what it's like to try to celebrate the holidays without her son. Um, and, and it's just the story that tells you not only this particular story, but it tells you a lot about what families all across Ukraine are feeling right now. This is a story that's multiplied times 10,000 because that's how many um, Ukrainian prisoners of war are, are in uh, Russian custody right now. Right. I mean, this is what we're trying to do is we're trying to take this micro, make it compelling and tell you a, a little bit of, of what's happening in, in the macro, the, the bigger sense of things. Yeah. And you, you touch on a little bit in that conversation that, that this battle against authoritarianism. And I heard you in that interview you did in May uh, that you talked about something that really struck me. And I, I'd love to pull that thread with you. You said something about that empathy is the enemy of authoritarianism essentially <laughs> right that that by by mm -hmm. presenting these human stories it is a way to push back against authoritarianism because authoritarianism dehumanizes right i mean pull tell me more about how is that what drives you and and and, and tell me more mm -hmm. about your your philosophy on that i mean i think it's a great philosophy and it doesn't just apply to ukraine and yeah. the battle against russia but it, it applies against our own political yeah. fights here in america yeah it I, I, what we're trying to do is we're trying to fight against uh, antipathy, right? And, right. Um, uh, and, and it really all just kind of uh, coalesces together. I mean, autocracy is about the rule of one, whether it's Putin, whether it's Bashar al-Assad, whether it's Xi Jinping. Um, autocracy is about one person making all the rules, making all the decisions, and individuals within those political systems who have to live under that repression being ignored. We're trying to, we're, we're trying to reverse that. And we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to give some voice to someone who is suffering under the systems because, you know, like you said, my philosophy is that empathy is the antidote to, the, to, to, to autocracy, that, that when you kind of highlight this individual suffering under an autocratic system, yeah. it demands a response from people who are reading, mm -hmm. whether it's moral, whether it's financial, whether it's political and, and kind of reaching out to your members of Congress. When you read these stories and you feel moved by them, you understand the suffering that happens as a result of authoritarianism. It it calls out for uh, some sort of action and response, and that that's what we're trying to do. Is we're trying to do to write these stories not just as you know some sort of um, uh, medium for providing information or 
entertainment. Yeah. It's really meant to try to compel or push folks to to understand what's happening in these places that seem far away but have real impact on uh, the future of the United States and the future of the West. And that's that's key. And that that argument's occurring here as we speak, as we record the show. Obviously, there's there's mm-hmm. arguments about aid. You know, how are the Ukrainians viewing? I mean, it's it must be. I mean, obviously, they're they're struggling. I mean, I think one of the articles you wrote recently that there's fifty thousand amputees mm-hmm. uh, in the Ukraine from the armed forces of Ukraine. We saw an article that said the Russians have lost like three fourths of their military. You know, I mean, there's there's these are huge loss in numbers. But by the mm-hmm. same time, the Ukrainians can't do this alone. They they do rely on aid. They don't have their own weapons industry. It, 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 they've been at war for a year, over a year and a half, going on two years. As they watch these political things unfold, is it what's the attitude of somebody knowing that the, the future of your nation rests in the hands of foreign politics, pol- politicians sometimes? Do you get feedback on that? Have you had those conversations with Ukrainians? Yeah. So, you know, one of my big fears in the medium to long term is this sense of betrayal and the sense of bitterness that I'm, that, that, that's yeah. bubbling up among Ukrainians, that they thought the United States, that they thought – um, Europe had their back, um, and they're feeling they're feeling that they're they're teetering. I mean, there's this deep pessimism that coincided with winter kind of dropping in, the temperatures dropping, the darkness coming in earlier, and then just this acknowledgement that things aren't going very well on the front lines. And soldiers have been out there for nearly two years with very few breaks, fighting almost constantly. People are tired to the bone. And then you're talk. And then you talk about everyone from you know uh, business owners to waiters and waitresses to people who have left the country and are waiting for a safe time to return. All of those people, as the war drags on and on, they're wondering. Well, you know, the United States helped us at the beginning, but it, it seems like they're kind of backing off. And you know, they 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 spoke a good game about caring about democracy, and they spoke a good game about pushing back against authoritarianism, but we really need this help if we're going to continue the prosecution of this war and the protection of civilians, the protection of these cities from falling under Putin's thumb. Why is the United States dithering? Why are they, why are they, you know, unable to, to unite and, and come together and, and approve support for a, a worthy cause? What I worry in, in the medium term is if the outcome for Ukraine is not good, Despite all of the investment that the United States has put in and all the help that the United States has provided, the common thread among why Ukraine wasn't as successful as it could have been um, might ultimately be that uh, that the United that they believe that the United States was at fault. Yeah. Uh, that they that the United States didn't step up, and and that's a real that's a real danger. I mean, the United States has a key role as a leader for democracy all around the world, um, and it. it you know, its reputation rises and falls on whether it stands on difficult moments like this. And, you know, Ukrainians are super pessimistic. They're very much down in the dumps at this, at this moment. And I'm worried that um, the, the reputation of the United States is going to take a big hit here as well. 
Yeah, and and globally, I mean, this is there is a global arc to this. I, I I've heard you talk about that. You, you wrote about that. Um, you did a great piece I loved back in October about you know how to talk to your Republican uncle about Ukraine. <laughs> and I, I can't think of an audience more that use that info than our audience. You know, the Midas Touch audience and the non democracy audience too is you know the keys to of of convincing our fellow Americans that the importance of this fight. I mean, what are some of the elements there? I mean, from pulling from your experience in Ukraine, and you've had conversations. Yeah. What are the elements? that we need to know so that we can say to our neighbors and to our elected officials, this is a fight that matters. Well, look, you, you'll remember that in the early months of the full-scale invasion yeah. where Russia came in and Ukraine was able to resist in this very um, vibrant and, and honestly surprising way and push yeah. out um, invading Russian troops, that a lot of people were taking broad geopolitical conclusions from this. And that it wasn't just a message to Putin, it was also a message to all authoritarians around the world that the current situation is that people with weapons like javelins, with, um, with, you know, with the means and, and the interest to resist, will push back. And you better think twice before you lose a bunch of blood and treasure over silly uh, acts of aggression. And that one of the um, dictators who... Uh, this message message ought to be heard by was Xi, Xi Jinping and, right. and whether or not he was interested in in um, launching some invasion of Taiwan over the next few years. Well, now as time goes on, and th there might be another lesson learned, which is that you know the, the initial part might not be easy, but what Russia has determined and what Russia seems to be counting on as its strategy is that if they hang on long enough, they can outlast the West's resolve. Um, that they can put that, even though the West has united around sanctions, they can kind of skirt those sanctions. And over time, if Ukraine isn't successful and if Putin is allowed to have its, his way, then the opposite message actually might be sent to China, which is, okay, you might get some, you're going to get some pushback at the beginning. Yeah. And it might be hard, yeah. but if you, if you stay, and, and you know, if you as an authoritarian leader stay the course, people will just forget over the long term. They just don't care. Um, and that is the real big picture challenge and the real big picture danger of what, what might happen here. It's not just about Ukraine. It's bad enough that with Ukraine, Thousands and thousands and thousands of people are dying. Over 100,000 alleged war crimes have been committed in the last 18, 19 months. We're talking tons and tons of people in the millions uh, who are trapped behind enemy lines uh, in Russian-occupied territories. And um, you hear tons of stories from the abduction of children to sexual violence to torture of pro-democracy activists to civil society not being able to ha being able to take part in any political decisions, on and on and on and on. So it's bad enough that there are these impacts in Ukraine. But what is going to happen is that this message is being sent to dictators and authoritarians around the world, hey, it's okay in the long term. Right. Just be patient. If you're willing to weather the short-term thing, um, you know, you'll get through it, and you'll get what you want by force alone. And that, that's a terrible message for us to, to, uh, to, to send in any century, let alone 21st century. Yeah.
and there and there's a history of it. I mean, we our our twenty year war in Afghanistan ended up with the same people in charge, uh, and and so we are we are teaching our enemies the lesson of our impatience and our failure to to be resilient in this case. Uh, that convenience is more important than strategy and suffering and and the larger geopolitical issues. And it is ironic as hell that the same people are you know complaining about China, 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 um, who's now a partner with Russia on this, <laughs> are are willing to just walk away and let them essentially score a victory uh, for polit cheap political points here in the United States. And 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 on that note, you know, you one of the things that does we do struggle with here a lot um, is these myths and these lies about Ukraine that the and I think you've talked about it previously and you've written about it too is you know like the big lie about well everything is corrupt. I mean, if I have to hear one more person say, well, I think I think JD Vance, a U.S. senator, was on TV saying, you know, why are we giving money to these guys so that um, his cabinet can buy bigger yachts? Um, what is the truth? I mean, I, I, obviously corruption has been a, a part of Ukraine's lives. How do we bust these myths? I mean, myths like that, which about corruption or otherwise. I, I, I've been basically in Ukraine in and out since the full scale invasion began. Yeah. Um, I have seen no yachts. I've seen no <laughs> yachts. What I do see is on a daily basis, I see people scared and afraid. I see them terrorized by air, uh, air alerts. I see them terrorized by drones buzzing around the city. You can hear them, you know, um, when, uh, when these Iranian-made Shahids drones buzz around the city, they, they've gotten this, this, um, this nickname that they're scooters because they sound like scooters. They're just buzzing around the city. And it's kind of a joke that people use to, to, to lighten the mood. Yeah. But like, imagine being a child growing up in this environment yeah. where, you know, where there are these deadly robots <laughs> flying in the sky that could explode and kill you and your family. Yeah. I mean, um, I don't see the yachts. Um, I haven't observed any corruption here. Uh, is there some level of corruption? Um, uh, I would expect so, but we, we haven't seen any reporting, any stories about any corruption affecting Western aid in substantial ways. Um, you know, so that's where the pushback would be. Um, fundamentally, the, the, the talk of corruption, well, corruption ought to be managed and corruption, there ought to be accountability for Western aid. I, I haven't seen anyone point to an example of where Western aid was corrupted, sold off. It was skimmed off or, 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 or whatever else. I mean, I think that right. Ukrainians understand that they need to be responsible with this or they will lose it. And they realize that they're in the fight of their lives. So ultimately, the corruption talking point is kind of a distraction. I mean, right. it, there's no there's no evidence behind it. It's a distraction made by people who wouldn't want to provide the aid anyways. There you go. Um, and it's not made in good faith, I don't think. Yeah, that's that's JD Vance in a nutshell, right? Uh, most of these arguments are not in good faith. Most of these arguments are 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 really domestic, political, uh, willing to undermine the U.S. reputation internationally and and our allies, and 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 that there's real lives. And and you talk about and this the stories you paint, um, the real life experiences of folks. Uh, you did a great story about the trucker sitting in the long line. It they're, they're now not only are we suffering, the U.S. is struggling, but even our partners like Poland and the EU are kind of pushing back or here as well, um, their backs are really against the wall. I mean, after all this time, how do they? How do the Ukrainians carry on? How do Ukrainian 
citizens get up each day and carry on as as you said not not they're not they're literally turning their backs has the issue at the polish border been resolved for those who don't know there's a a blockade at the polish border where trucks are waiting in five mile long lines to get across the border how do how do these ukrainians get up at each day and and, and face that with the worry and and what's the long-term danger or even the short-term danger for that happening yeah i mean i i you know what I'd want to do here is encourage your listeners and your and, and your um, your viewers to to put yourself in the shoes of someone who is who is just trying to live their lives. Let's say, for example, like one of the truckers we profiled has a newborn at home. Yeah. He is trying to earn enough to make ends meet. Um, you get up and go on. You go on because there really is no alternative. Yeah. And, and so there's this kind of grim there's this grim situation where people are, you know, super pessimistic about the future and what, what the next few months will hold. There really is no alternative, but to continue. Yeah. You know, you, you, you're, um, the people who are here are there, they're fighting for their idea for the very idea that Ukraine ought to exist as an identity, that their families ought not to be slaughtered. Um, that they're, that they're, uh, that their uh, democratic system ought to be maintained. Um, those things are things worth fighting. And Americans historically have agreed. These are the sorts of things that are worth fighting and dying for. Right. And worth continuing for, even when it looks grim, even when it looks difficult. And so, you know, you know, as, as you mentioned, we, we profiled one of these Ukrainian truckers. He's in a line right now that's, 40 miles long. Jesus. He's been in, um, he, he's, he's been in line for five days. He's, he's trying to bring some, um, some goods from Poland into, into Ukraine. Now this, this ultimately is, a is a kind of, um, tariffs and, uh, and cross-border issue, right? That um, Polish truckers are preventing Ukrainian trucks from crossing the border because they're worried that they're going to be undercut by cheaper Ukrainian labor. Um, but this is you know, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, um, which is that uh, authoritarians, in this case Putin, are just waiting and, and inciting. By the way, through you know things like informational warfare, yeah, they're just waiting for Ukraine's closest allies to move on or to get used to the situation. Ukrainians can't don't have the luxury of getting used to the situation. Yeah. Um, you know, Poland had been one of the strongest backers of Ukraine since the full-scale invasion began. But now you're seeing these, these, uh, these splinters start to start to pop up, um, the, the splintering of um, various groups. Um, truckers in Poland are, are starting to say, well, you know, it was okay for these Ukrainians to, to do a little trucking inside the EU for a few months you know, during the full-scale invasion. But now I think um, we're going to protest and blockade them and, Make sure that they can't pass. I mean, the the um, uh, the this well of support is slowly running dry, and what we're trying to do is trying to tell some of these personal stories to show this is not just a border issue. This is not just a tariff issue. This has real effects on human beings who are suffering, and and that has real effects for the fight for democracy. Well, they're in here, I, I, and and globally as well, and and there are lessons to pull from that. So it's been a pretty grim conversation. <laughs> I mean, where do you find 
hope. I mean, I, I always try, one of my big themes in this show is I always try to get my guests to, and my listeners and viewers understand that there's, while there is tough, we have tough times ahead of us. Um, it's hard to find optimism sometime. You're, you live there. I know, I, you know, you, I, we, Ukrainians are famously um, resilient people and, and, and proud. Um, where do you find hope in all of this, Tim? I mean, where, where is the moment for hope in all this? Is there, I guess is a better question. The one thing I've been saying is you can still find sushi in Ukraine. <laughs> a lot of people ask me like, what's, what's the most, what's the most, um, what's the most surprising thing about that, that, that you've learned in Ukraine? They'll, 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 they think I'll probably talk about attackums missiles or, you know, air defenses or the trenches or, you know, javelin missiles. And I say, you know, a lot of people think that borscht, is the Ukrainian national food. It's not. <laughs> it's actually the Philadelphia roll. I was not Ukrainians aware. are obsessed with the Philadelphia roll. They, they and, and they put cream cheese on all of they put cream cheese on all of their raw fish. I can't I'm not a I'm not from Philadelphia. I don't even know if Philadelphia claims the Philadelphia roll, but um <laughs> It's a wild story. I've done some, you know, um, looking into this, and sushi became very, very popular around the Revolution of Dignity around um, around 2014, as Ukrainians demanded democratic rights, as they demanded uh, that their politicians recognize that Ukraine wants to be closer to Europe and further away from Russia, yeah. and as part of that the culinary choices changed too as the Ukrainians look to Europe and they're like, what do these Europeans eat? And they're like, sushi and pizza. And so, so after 2014, there was this explosion in the pot, in the popularity of sushi slash pizza joints. And okay. not, not separately. The restaurant would serve two things, <laughs> sushi and pizza. And um, for some reason, cream cheese sushi became the most popular. I've had sushi near the front lines. I've been to places that have just been attacked um, by missiles or artillery uh, in eastern Ukraine. And across the street, you'll go, there's a sushi place there. <laughs> you know, um, how the fish gets into Ukraine, a place that is nowhere near the ocean, I don't know. And I've asked. I've asked sushi, I've asked sushi restaurateurs here in Ukraine, and they're like, it just comes by truck. I don't know where it comes from, ultimately. <laughs> um, and maybe, you know, as I'm eating it, I, I, I ought not to ask too too much I about say, where the things, come from. <laughs> there's things I want out of the sourcing for, you know. But that's been one of those things. It's like, okay, there's resilience, but how do I, how do I illustrate the resilience? The way I illustrate that resilience and Ukrainians continuing to move forward is look, you can go to the front lines and you can find sushi. That's, that's my story on that. <laughs> it is the banality of it. You know, the best chicken I ever had was in the green zone, you know, in between rocket attacks and Iraq, you know, if you're, you know, 2005, there was, there was a little chicken stand that mm -hmm. everybody knew and we'd, we'd, we'd sneak over there and get a roasted, you know, basically Iraqi rotisserie chicken. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's the banality of war and, and you get used to it. I've heard you talk too about the explosion. I'll probably wrap on that point is life under wartime. You sort of get used to it. I remember sitting in Iraq. Um, I was, I, I spent my second second and third tours in the green zone and and we were under attack from solder city mm -hmm. you get good at knowing what's inbound what's outbound <laughs> and how far it's going like you can you can tell it's mm -hmm. going to overshoot or go undershoot 
uh, I think that's life for you every yeah. day, right? You're, you're listening to these explosions. You, it, the the people are getting used to it. Just this morning, just this morning at four o'clock in the morning, there are a bunch of explosions. You could hear air defense because the air defense that's outgoing to take out these missiles, they have a more hollower boom yeah. sound, right? Right. And um, versus the explosions that are much more kind of crispier, they're they're much more like um, they're much more movie like. Yeah. You know, like 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 the explosions you'd imagine in the movies. And you can hear, you, you know, I, I woke up at four o'clock in the morning this morning, um, and didn't get an didn't get an air alert, yeah. right? Um, perhaps because perhaps because of the internet outage. But I hear this: there are these explosions. There's chaos in uh, in my apartment, of course. You know, people are fumbling around. It's very, you know, people are very concerned, and and you just kind of get used to it and you, 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 you get up and you think, okay, I'm going to worry about this or I'm just going to try to get a couple more hours of sleep here because yeah. uh, it didn't take us out. Right. So right. Uh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do about it? I know. Well, um, we managed to get through that. Yeah. yeah. I remember, um, I remember laying like, in the, bed. the terrible reality of this is that, is that like the, these awful acts of violence, they become like you say, normalized, mm-hmm. right? Dozens of people were injured today. Um, as a result of those attacks, more than 50 wow. in Kyiv. Um, and I'm not sure what the latest numbers are in terms of fatalities, but I mean, this happens all the time and you can't help but but wonder, is something terrible happening to my mind that I'm getting used to it? Yeah, it's the banality. Like I said, I I, I remember just laying in, yeah. laying in your cot, like the bunker's outside, it's early, do I really want to get out of bed? <laughs> you know, that one's going long, you know, and you just, you you, you you come to a certain acceptance of your fate, I suppose it is. And well, I, I don't want to take more of your time. I, I Tim, I really appreciate your perspective. Um, I think the last thing I say, what what would be your message as these, if you could send a message to our, our news, you know, our, our political leaders and those in the White House and those in the Congress, what, what is your thoughts on as they argue this case? right now and which is literally occurring as we speak of continued aid and the need for continued aid what would be your message from from ukraine itself for those policymakers if i could if i could email it to them tomorrow yeah i'd say sit down and and hash it out i mean the, the policymakers by and large the vast majority of lawmakers in the house and senate both parties support ukraine aid. right and they brought in uh, republican lawmakers have brought in this other uh, totally unrelated issue on policy um, uh, on on border policy, and it smashed it into this into what should be you know a, a near unanimous uh, bill that would pass uh, with with resounding support from both parties in both houses. Yeah. Um, it, 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 I I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on you know how to fix it, but ultimately, folks just need to sit down and hammer out a compromise that that works because fundamentally there are, there are there are free people out here in Ukraine that are fighting every day in actual and and shedding blood um to defend their democracy whereas american democracy is kind of dithering at home and taking you know an early holiday break leaving um uh, leaving before, you know for their christmas recess and their New Year's recess. Well, people are literally dying out here, waiting for their response. It's unacceptable. 
I agree. Well, I will, I will pass that message on <laughs> to our next guest, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so, Tim, man, it's so good to connect with you. It's been too long. It's good to see your face. It's good to see you still healthy and, and young compared to me. I, I was joking. In the pre <laughs> we were joking in the pre-show, folks, that, that I've grayed in the 10 years I've known Tim, and he has not, <laughs> which I, I think he was a child when I met him the first I have, time. I have quite a few more gray <laughs> hairs. Oh man. My They'll entire, up. My entire up. Yeah, beard is gray now. So <laughs> I'm truly a gray beard now. So, uh, the most important thing, Tim, thank Thank you for everything you're doing. Thanks for your reporting. I'm an avid reader. Uh, more importantly, stay safe over there. I know it's uh, it's a, it's a weird situation to be sitting there in the middle of a war zone. So uh, I uh, I always tell people people say what was it like working with journalists in combat. And I would say, you know, a lot of the, the combat journalists I know were saw more combat than I ever did, <laughs> and uh, and that's no kidding. True, you know, you guys are you, you've been there since the beginning. So most importantly, you and your colleagues stay safe. And thank you so much for informing us of what's going on. Well, thanks so much for having me on. And if any any folks are, who are listening or watching want to check us out, we're at counteroffensive.news. You beat me to it. I was going to say, plug the, plug the substack. So counteroffensive.news, <laughs> you got to pay, folks. This, I don't I don't often say this, but you know, to support this, what, what, what Tim's done is a brave thing. He's struck on his own. He's building a news organization informing what's going on in the world uh, at $8 a month, $8 a year. Uh, counteroffensive.news. Totally worth it. Like I said, I'm a subscriber. It's worth it. Uh, they just did a Zoom. You did a Zoom with our friend uh, uh, Alex Vimmin. You know, our first our That's first right, guest yeah. on uh, of the year, and uh, you know, good a dear friend of mine as well. And so uh, it's really important what you're doing. So so dear readers, dear followers, dear listeners, please go on over and subscribe to counterfensive.news so they can keep doing this important work for all of us. So thank you, sir. Matt, a fascinating conversation. And if you haven't, uh, if you didn't catch it, uh, we'll put it in this, the blurb of the show. Uh, the counteroffensive.news um, is terrific. Counteroffensive.news is terrific journalism, uh, a very unique storytelling framework when they actually talk to individuals who are struggling in Ukraine or experiencing in Ukraine. I cannot recommend it enough. And it was such a great conversation, I think, for giving you a picture. And I'm really excited about our next guest. Uh, let's go. Let's hear from our sponsors, and then we'll talk to Deputy National Spokesperson, National Security Council, Sean Savet. Heart health and staying healthy, especially when you have a family you want to spend time with, is so important. So important. So we could all benefit from heart-healthy energy. Now, one of the best ways to get some, by supporting your blood pressure and circulation. Superbeats Heart Chews are an easy and convenient way to support healthy blood pressure. They're plant-based and stimulant-free, so you get a green boost without the jitters of caffeine. Paired with a healthy lifestyle, the antioxidants of Superbeats are clinically shown to be nearly two times more effective at promoting normal blood pressure than a healthy lifestyle alone. Superbeats Heart Chews are incredibly delicious and so much better than any alternative supplements out there. I take my Superbeats Hard Shoes each morning and it's really kickstarted my morning routine. After taking my Superbeats Hard Shoes, I feel like I have more energy and I'm ready to take on the day. Superbeats is the number one doctor, pharmacist, and cardiologist recommended beat brand for cardiovascular health support. It's blood pressure support you can trust. Superbeats Heart Shoes support healthy circulations, so you not only get blood pressure support, you also get productive, heart-healthy energy without the crash. Now, double your potential with Superbeats Heart Shoes. Get a free 30-day supply of Superbeats Heart Shoes and 15% off your first order by going to super, GetSuperBeats.com and using promo code FRED. That's GetSuperBeats, B-E-E-T-S.com, code FRED. Check out him, Superbeats. You won't regret it. 
You know, someone told me there are science-backed ingredients that could help me feel 15 years younger in just a matter of months. I wouldn't have believed it. Well, then I tried Qualia Senolytics. You know, as we age, everyone accumulates senescent cells in their body. Senescent cells cause symptoms of aging, such as aches and pains, slow workout recoveries, sluggish mental and physical energy that I know so well, all associated with that middle-aged feeling. Now, also known as zombie cells, they're old and worn out and serving a no useful function for your health anymore, but they're taking up space and nutrients from our healthy cells. You know, much like pruning the yellow and dead leaves and plants in my garden, Qualia Senolytic removes those worn out senescent cells to allow for the rest of them to thrive in your body. You take it just two days a month. The formula is non-GMO, vegan, as well as gluten-free. And the ingredients are meant to complement one another, factoring in the combined effect of all the ingredients together. But best of all, on top of all that, you have a 100-day money-back guarantee. And since taking Qualia Senolytics, I have had higher energy levels. I feel 15 years younger, more productive, enthusiastic in life, not to mention, importantly for me, less aches and pains. Now, resist aging at the cellular level. Try Qualia Senolytic. Go to neurohacker.com slash Fred for up to $100 off, and then use code Fred at checkout for an additional 15% off. That's neurohacker.com slash Fred for an extra 15% off of your purchase. And man, thanks Neurohacker for sponsoring our show. Man, it's great to be back. My next guest, I'm so excited to have join us. You know, we were just in Ukraine talking to Tim Mack about the, the uh, life on the ground there. And I really wanted to bring in the perspective of here in DC. As you know, President Zelensky came to visit this week. So I got no better, I mean, I couldn't ask for a better guest. Thank you, the White House. Sean Savet is the Deputy Spokesperson for the National Security Council. Sean, thanks so much for joining us today to give us this new perspective. Thank you for having me, Fred. It's good to be on the show. Yeah. So let's start there. You know, President Zelensky was right here in the White House this week. He met with the president. He met with Congress. You know, where do we stand in our ability to continue assisting Ukraine at this moment as we speak? Uh, so it's uh, we're at a critical juncture right now and at a critical yeah. moment. We need Congress to take action. That, that That's simply uh, where we stand right now, that we have enough resources left for one or two more aid packages in this month uh, for Ukraine to meet their urgent battlefield needs. Obviously, your, your listeners and your viewers just heard uh, from Tim just how uh, critical the um, the needs are on the ground right now. Yeah. And then after that, we're going to we're going to be in a serious, uh, seriously tough situation. Uh, we need Congress to act. The, the president put forward this uh, national security supplemental request let's see uh back in august for the first time because uh yeah and then and then again in, in october because uh we we saw what was happening in the battlefield we wanted to make sure that we didn't run out of resources to support ukraine and uh here we are where, where congress has not acted yet and if anything we're hearing right now that house republicans are preparing to go out of town and go home for the holidays for a three-week break and uh that would just send a terrible message to to ukraine it would send a terrible message to our allies to countries around the world when uh, we we need resources to ensure that uh, Ukraine's urgent battlefield needs are met, and that there is not going to be any interruption to the, the critical flow of American supplies. And and what are what, what's in the current package that is before Congress? I believe it's sixty million, if I'm correct. Yes, yes. So uh, what we've what we've asked for is uh, is funding authorities to allow us to continue to take weapons and equipment that are in uh, U.S. military stocks around the world, and then to send them to Ukraine, and to then go out and buy new weapons and equipment to replace what we're sending to Ukraine, which creates jobs, restarts production lines around this country. That there's a bit of a misconception out there that the uh, that the funding we that Congress has approved for Ukraine is just money that we're sending over to to Ukraine, and and you know they'll just use that to to try to defend themselves. And, and what actually is the case 
is that Congress uh, approves uh, specific um, funding authorities that the the U.S. Army, the you know the Navy, other uh, other branches can then go, uh, the, the command commands can then go and uh, and say, okay, well we can now afford to uh, remove you know X or remove Y from our own stocks. We can send those uh, those artillery ammunition rounds, right. the, the HIMARS, the Javelins, uh, whatever we have in stocks right now. Those uh, you know air defense assets. We can send that over to Ukraine. They can then use that on the battlefield to uh, to defend themselves against Russian soldiers, to protect their cities from uh, aerial barrages from uh, from Russia um, from Russian forces. And then uh, the military gets to go and buy a bunch of new stuff uh, that's even better and that uh, creates jobs and supports jobs around the country. And so most. Um, you know, post Cold War, uh, and, and really as we wound down from Iraq and Afghanistan, a lot of uh, production uh, lines, as you know, Fred, have uh, have been, been shut down or yep. stagnated. The U.S. military has been ordering less and less stuff, and that overall hurts our military readiness. And, and so, uh, the what we've done to support Ukraine has actually significantly improved our military readiness because all of a sudden we're giving the the combatant commands a bunch of uh, a bunch of new shit. For, forgive my language. Uh, that's uh, that's newer. That's uh, that's supporting American jobs and. Uh, that replaces what we're giving to Ukraine. So it's, it's a win-win, yeah. but unfortunately uh, at the end of this month, uh, we're going to lose what's called replenishment authority. That's okay. the, uh, the technical term for uh, what Congress approves that allows, uh, allows the military to go buy uh, weapons and equipment to replace what we're giving Ukraine. And so we'll be at this critical point now where we can't replace anything else that we're giving. We have dwindling resources to to give Ukraine more, and it'll be uh, it'll be an entirely political, self inflicted uh, problem because uh, we've now jump started these production lines, so we don't right. have a capacity issue. Right. We are still producing a bunch of weapons, equipment, artillery, ammunition, um, uh, rounds that you know that Ukrainian forces could be using every single day to to fire at any Russian forces who are going on the offensive. We're we're still producing more interceptors for Patriot missiles uh, and, and and things like that um, to shoot down Russian missiles and, and protect cities. But we all of a sudden won't have the ability or the authority to actually give it to Ukraine, and it'll okay. just sit in U.S. stocks. And, and that's just a weird juncture to be in right now. Uh, yeah. So that's why we, we need Congress to ask, act. And quite simply, we need House Republicans not to pick up and get out of town at the end of this week, because that's the current plan right now. They're going home for the holidays. And uh, that would just send a, a terrible message, both of uh, both to Ukraine, but also to Putin. Yeah. We've, we've seen Russian state TV this week uh, yeah. highlighting and cheerleading what uh, congressional Republicans are doing. Yeah. Uh, have been they've been they've been uh, talking on Russian TV about how uh, it's it's great that uh, you know that, that Congress is blocking funding right now. The you know egging congressional Republicans on, and we saw the uh, the spokesperson for the Kremlin, Vladimir Putin's press secretary, say yesterday that they're watching very closely what happens in Congress this week. So our message to Congress is Russia's watching, so is Ukraine, so is the rest of the world. Pass this funding right now and make sure that we uh, can continue to stand with Ukraine in their time of need. And let's pull that thread a little bit too about, you know, about where this stuff go, the aid packages. There's so much mythology and, and misinformation and disinformation. I, I saw ridiculous disinformation mm -hmm. from Lauren Witzke today, who's a former uh, Senate candidate, just a nut job, basically saying that Zelensky bought a big house in Florida with our money, basically. The, the, we're not... We're not you're going to laugh. I served in Iraq in the early days of the war, and we literally did ship over pallets of cash. I I, I distributed it. <laughs> you know, we're not doing that. We, we, for those who don't know the history in Iraq, the early days, we were giving money, literally giving money out. And, and I remember I was up in Mosul Airport, and my commander goes, hey, you got to come see this. And we go over, and there's a no kidding pallet this high of cash. 
this yeah. is not that and case, right? <laughs> you know, we're not exactly. doing that this, this time, are we? Right now. Yeah, yeah. The opposite, and I, I don't mean to interrupt you, Fred, but the exact opposite, so your so your listeners can understand the, the comparison with then and now. Yeah. Is that when we give uh, economic aid and budget aid to of Ukraine. It's not a pallet of cash. What actually is, is it goes through a fund distributed by the World Bank. Okay. And there are two uh, two uh, companies that are doing auditing. There's Deloitte and there's another accounting firm as well that then audits Deloitte, which audits the World Bank, okay. uh, to uh, make sure that there's built-in oversight. And uh, the government of Ukraine, when they're going to use this budget aid and this economic aid that they get from the U.S. or other allies, they have to, to submit verified expenses receipts uh, of what they're actually doing so yeah. we know that they are using this funding to go pay those first responders when uh when there's a missile attack uh that uh, hits an apartment building the people yeah. who are on the scene if they're government first responders that's where our our budget aid is going and we know that the soldiers when they get paychecks that's where the that's where that aid is going it's those paychecks because we we see the receipts that we're getting and um and you know, I, I know that giving economic aid may not be as popular as sending a weapon. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's a lot more concrete to say, look at this javelin that just took out a Russian tank. It's pretty cool. Uh, but the uh, the reality is that Ukraine's um, military expenditures uh, exceed more than 100% of their uh, their budget right now. Wow. And so they won't actually have, they actually will not have the money and the resources to pay their soldiers on the front lines in these tough conditions if we don't continue to provide economic aid uh, in other countries as well. So that's uh, a big part of what this Ukraine funding package is as well. And that's and it's that's, not the pound of cash. Yeah, it's not a pound of cash. And the, and the most of the money, as you mentioned earlier, essentially is staying right here in the United States. It's, it is going to U.S. defense manufacturers. Yep. It is going to yep. purchase U.S. actual equipment. And it's never actually touching yep. Ukrainian hands in any way, is it? Right. Right, exactly right. I, I believe the uh, the figure is more than sixty percent of the overall uh, supplemental funding that Congress has approved since the beginning of this war right. in response to uh, in response to uh, Putin's invasion has gone to buying new weapons and equipment in Ukraine. So that money is going to uh, or for Ukraine rather. So that money is going to U.S. defense contractors. It's going into the pockets of American workers who are producing uh, producing this equipment, or it's going to DoD operations. Uh, as as you may recall, uh, when Putin Putin invaded Ukraine, and a lot of our NATO allies were uh, were on alert. And, and Putin's had signaled that yeah. many NATO, you know, some of NATO's eastern flank countries could be next. We uh, we plussed up. We increased uh, the, uh, the our force posture. We sent more troops to to Poland and to uh, to other countries on NATO's eastern flank, because especially after the the previous administration, uh, we wanted to send the message that we stand with our NATO allies, that our support is ironclad, and as President uh, Biden says, that we will defend every inch of NATO territory. Yeah. That was a very important message uh, for the president to send in this time of uncertainty. And it was also important because he is so committed to our allies and partners because he he fundamentally recognizes that when our alliances are strong and our partnerships are strong, that helps Americans' interests. It helps American security. And when another country is nervous, when an ally is nervous, uh, you need to to you know, not just talk, uh, talk the talk, but walk the walk. And uh, so we've had more American troops uh, in Eastern Europe in NATO allies. Now I'll be clear in NATO territory, right. not in Ukraine. There are no U.S. forces, uh, despite the misinformation that's out there. There are no U.S. forces that are in Ukraine fighting Russia. There are U.S. forces in Poland, Germany, and NATO allies uh, stationed there as a deterrent to Vladimir Putin, unless you think about uh, about attacking NATO territory. Um, but yeah. that is uh, that that's that's where a lot of this this funding is going. It's it's uh, it's not all going to Ukraine. 
Yeah, great. And so we did get the announcement when Mr. Zelensky was here that uh, I know Secretary Austin and President Zelensky met and he we announced that we were doing another a couple hundred million, I believe, dollars worth of, of, of uh, under presidential uh, drawdown authority, PDA. Uh, explain that. I mean, because we're being told we're running out of money, but there is there is some money left in our current aid packages and using this presidential authority. Can you explain that a little bit to our viewers? So they understand when they see this, like it, it's, I think sometimes it confuses people who are watching this. Like yeah. on one hand, we're saying well, there's no money, we can't help. And on the other hand, we're announcing, congratulations, here's some more patriots. Can you walk through what the PDA means and uh, not public display of affection, I guess, but <laughs> what, what does the PDA mean right. and, and, and what do we just do? Right. When you say PDA, uh, when you say PDA around here, uh, it means a very different thing than yeah, the West uh, Point, where uh, I went to college. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Against regulations exactly. at West Point. <laughs> <laughs> right here, it's a presidential drawdown authority. Okay. Uh, which is uh, so, which is the uh, the authority, as I, I said earlier, that allows the U.S. military to uh, take weapons, equipments uh, out of our stocks and to send it to to Ukraine. Okay. And so we, the aid package that the president announced yesterday, when he was sitting alongside President Zelensky and the Oval Office was uh, was uh, drawn from previous funding that Congress had had approved. So last, uh, I believe it was last September, Congress approved. Uh, uh, significant amount of uh, PDA authority. I, 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 the number, the exact numbers escaped me at the moment, but it, it was a significant amount. Yeah. And what we have done is we have, uh, you know, every couple of weeks we have uh, drawn from those funding authorities to give Ukraine a new aid package. And the, the reason we, we do that um, every two to three weeks is because different battlefield needs arise. We want to make sure that we have the flexibility to respond to any developments. So when Russia launches a new offensive, uh, we can quickly resupply those Ukrainian forces. Um, when you when Ukraine tells us, well, their air defenses are uh, running low around Kiev, or all of a sudden Russia is doing something new, like targeting Odessa and uh, you know the ports uh, in Ukraine, as they did this summer when they withdrew from the Black Sea Green Initiative, and all of a sudden there's a new urgent need there for air defenses. We have those resources available to to give uh, to Ukraine, um, and so we've been we've been doing these aid packages consistently every two weeks or so for the last two years, yeah. and we are now running at the very end of that uh, of that. Uh, bucket. So we're, right. we're nearly, we've nearly scraped a dry. Uh, there's uh, enough for about one, maybe two more packages this month um, before we'll run out of the ability to to do more without uh, replacing our own stocks. So we, we, we were, I guess there's two buckets if I'm going to be very precise. There's okay. the PDA bucket right here, which is the, uh, and then there's the replenishment bucket I talked about earlier, which yeah. is the, you send from one, you can immediately replace from the other. We, uh, we will be out of the replenishment bucket uh, by the end of this month and we will have uh, just a tiny bit of PDA remaining, but we won't be able to replace what we give. And so all of a sudden we're hurting our military readiness and we yeah. just don't want to be in that position. So that's, no, the, the, that's yeah. the technical term. Yeah, because we are sending M1s now. We are sending... Uh, Bradley's, which I know are saving from Tim's yep. reporting. We know Bradley fighting vehicles are saving lives. He did a pretty good <laughs> story about it. if you saw it. He did a story about Bradley fighting vehicles mm-hmm. um, making such a difference in the battlefield. So it's it's remarkable. But you're right. We have a limited they're number. Being produced not... in Pennsylvania, they're yeah. being produced in countries around that. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, as American as President Biden said, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, Fred. No, I just, no. uh, when President Biden did that Oval Office address uh, about a month and a half ago, he, he talked about how American workers are producing this equipment that's going to the fight for freedom in Ukraine. Right. And that that's something that Americans should be proud of. But we also want to make sure that those American workers can continue to have funding to uh, from the Defense Department to produce those Bradleys, as, as it goes into Tim's reporting. Well, the lesson learned, too, is, I mean, there, and there's lessons for the United States military. We're using, the, I don't think, I mean, look, I'm an old soldier, so... 
none of us saw this much artillery rounds going downrange. I mean, I think in modern warfare, there was an assumption, but the burn rate of ammunition in this war has been staggering. I mean, staggering in historical terms. Not, I don't think we've seen this kind of burn rate for artillery ammunition and, and anti-tank missiles since uh, probably, probably Korea or, you know, or in, certainly even Vietnam. So it's, it's, there is there is been value, if you will, in us restarting these ammunition plants. We, we had let these plants languish. There's been a lot of defense consolidation. I think when I retired from the military, there was 20, uh, 20 defense manufacturers. When the war started, I guess you should say 2000, there was a, there were like 21 defense manufacturers. Now there's like six, <laughs> you know. And so there is value that we're getting these restarted, and, and there's a long term goal because our defense is going to rely on the lessons we're learning from this war as well. I, I believe, don't you? I think that's the way you see it too, right? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's the strategic lessons right. that uh, American military officials and planners will, will learn and uh, the tactical lessons. Uh, and then there's the, uh, and there's the, you know, lessons about making sure that you're, you're well-stocked and well-supplied and you see what, uh, what works and what doesn't and restarting those production lines both here in America and in our, uh, in Europe has been really important. I think there is a, I think the world woke up and, and realized all of a sudden we're, we're watching this, the biggest land war in Europe since world war two that has this huge drain on artillery, as you said, and, um, Russia has significantly ramped up its, uh, its production. I mean, they've gone full wartime economy, uh, and, you know, shifted uh, resources away from a lot of other things to, to ramp up their own production because it's this need. And then we've been trying to do the same through the money that Congress has authorized. We've been urging our European allies and partners to be doing the same. And uh, and they are, but uh, that kind of ramp up, uh, it, it takes time. And it's it also is important to sustain it. And that's why you don't want to cut congressional funding all of a sudden uh, once you do bring all those jobs back and do put all those people back to work. Because all of a sudden we're seeing that there are conflicts that need these kind of uh, ammunition and equipment, unfortunately. I think I've taken a lot of time. The one thing I do want to come out on is, you know, what's the impact of Congress doesn't pass? I mean, what's the, even in the delay, I feel like we're sending a very a clear message, not just to our Ukrainian allies, but we're sending messages to Russia. We're sending messages to China. I mean, what do you, what does the White House see as the real danger, not just for Ukraine, but for our, our global position, if we fail to support Ukraine at this point? A really good question, and it's a really important message. There's, of course, there's the impact first to Ukraine, where uh, all of a sudden, if you don't have artillery ammunition going to Ukraine every two weeks, we can see Russian uh, Russian soldiers taking over trenches, overrunning Ukrainian lines. Uh, you know, Ukraine has had a lot of success. They, they, they've shocked the world, I think, uh, going back to what everyone's expectations were in February 2022. Yeah. Ukraine has retaken more than 50% of the territory that Russia took in its initial invasion. Wow. And I, that's all of a sudden at risk if, uh, if we don't pass more funding um but uh, taking a step broader than Ukraine all of a sudden for the moment, you know, you have, you have a, an emboldened Putin who thinks, well, I, you know, the, the West's support crumbled. Uh, they didn't do anything to stop us from taking over Ukraine. What country should I try to invade next? We yeah. you know President Biden's line from history is that we we know that uh, dictators don't stop. if uh, They just keep going. Uh, you know, we know this from common sense, too, that if you don't stand up to bullies, they're they're just going to keep going, uh, and, and you have to do that. But then you also have to look at the uh, the impacts uh, around the rest of the world, uh, among, among our allies uh, who trust American credibility, who, uh, you know, we have so many treaty alliances around the world. We have uh, strong partnerships with countries, and we want them to know that uh, American credibility means something, that when we say we will come to your defense, we will be there to support you in your time of need, uh, that we will help you if you're uh, if you're experiencing a challenge. If we, you know, we want you to uh, reorient yourselves towards a more pro-American, pro-Western approach as a, a opposed to, uh, you know, a 
uh, pro-Russian or another approach, we want them to know that we are there to support them. But alternatively, you also have to look at uh, what would-be aggressors and, uh, and adversaries would, would take away from that. You know, what, what lessons will other countries around the world and other regions around the world who are watching, uh, you know, the strength of U.S. support for Ukraine take from this if, uh, if congressional Republicans fail to stand with Ukraine and yank away our support? Yeah, it does send a, a loud and clear message that we don't want broadcast. Uh, and look, that is the danger. I think it's always been the danger in the West. Um, Tim and I did talk, did talk about it earlier, where you know that these these enemies, these authoritarians, know they can wait us out. And if we if we give in to exhaustion or give in to you know, oh, it's just taking too darn long, they they do win. I mean, and the, and the message will be very clear. Whereas the uh, the fight that stopped them and that that initial fight may have given our enemies other enemies pause. China's probably watching. Like, oh, wait a minute. It's not going to be an easy win, but then the second message is if we just if we give in after two years and they they're that they, they're going to say oh okay well we may not win initially but they'll quit you know it's it's a very yeah. very dangerous message to be sending to the world about the United States and what we stand for. Very much so, especially in the Indo Pacific where uh, we yeah. certainly I uh, don't want to see the stability of that disrupted right now. Uh, you, you talk to other countries in Europe, but you can you can say that for every continent around the world. I mean, the uh, you know a hallmark of the 21st century and this international order that we've built is that uh, we're not going to allow or that countries should not be allowed to try to conquer or carve up their neighbor's territory just for conquest. And that that's that is something that we saw for centuries in history. We saw countries and empires, uh, you know. Uh, invade each other, uh, conquer each other, a lot of death and violence and war. And, and that was something that coming out of World War II, the United States was at the lead of trying to set up an international order to prevent that from ever happening again. And, and you know, by and large, we've uh, we've succeeded in that up until now. And that's that's what's at stake right now, that it's, uh, it's not just the freedom and the independence of the people of Ukraine. And it's not just whether or not we're going to support uh, the people who've been subject to war crimes, to crimes against humanity, to absolute brutality from uh, from uh, Kremlin-backed uh, and Russian forces, but it's also about whether or not we're going to stand up for these principles in history. And the history will judge uh, the United States, in particular, congressional Republicans, if they do not continue to stand with the people of Ukraine. Yeah, and we we haven't even talked about the Israel situation. I mean, there's so much going on, right? And and, and for them to simply walk away and go home at this moment, right. uh, this crisis moment in America, right. uh, for America and for our global allies, it it is just a, it's just such a terrible precedent. And even as they pursue, which you won't discuss, because you know this ridiculous impeachment stuff today and and this week, it's just it's just completely ludicrous what's happened uh, in the Congress. Yeah. So, well, uh, Sean, yeah. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you joining us and taking time. I know you're a busy man right now. Uh, obviously. There's going on in the world i think my viewers really appreciate understanding better what's going on and 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 uh and keep up the fight brother thank you fred i appreciate it thank you for having me on the show and hope to do it again soon look forward to it thanks Wow. Okay. What a great conversation, right? Sean uh, is terrific. Uh, he knows those numbers. He knows the policy. Uh, really, really super informative, really more informed than I even hoped for. So I, th I think you see it now, right? You see the connection between what's happening on the ground in Ukraine and what's happening in DC. And the danger we face both actual with national security, the danger for us and for our allies, but the global danger with the political manipulations that are happening in Washington, D.C. with the Republicans. I, I hope you're armed with information you can help you, like understanding what a PDA means and understanding what is the, the situation we face as a nation and why we must continue to say it. Obviously, I take a very strong position in Ukraine. We must help Ukraine. The, the, there's, just, there's just no way around this. We have an international duty. We have a national security duty for the United States. We can't say we're worried about Iran. We're worried about China, we're worried about other despots and authoritarians, and then allow 
Putin to do his will upon the people of Ukraine, commit war crimes, and take over territory illegally. So there just isn't a way out of this. I mean, I wish I wish I could say, oh yeah, it's we can half-ass it. We can't half-ass it. You can't half-ass murder. You can't half-ass the, the the slaughter that's going on. Uh, and and there's just no way to ignore that. So with all that, that's I hope you enjoy the show. I'm gonna drag this out. As always, uh, you can find us on Substack at fpwoman.substack.com. Uh, I'd love you to join that community. You'll find more information about the show and some stuff going on. Uh, you can always find me at fpwellman on I'm still on X a little bit for now, I hope. I don't know, we'll see. It's getting bad. But definitely on threads. I love threads, fpwellman official on threads, fpwellman uh, official on Instagram. As always, follow the show on DemoxyPod. Um, and our own YouTube channel. If you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel, if you're a regular Midas Touch viewer, uh, I would love you to do that. We're going to be putting a lot more content on there. We got a pretty good plan for the new year with new content for the for the On Democracy channel. Uh, you'll be seeing some interesting stuff you might not see on the Midas Touch channel. So if you've got time, slide on over to On Democracy Podcast on YouTube and subscribe there. It's for free, of course, and uh, you'll get the show a little early. Yeah, I, I sneak it out early to our subscribers. So be sure to do that. With that. Have a wonderful week. Uh, we're getting close to the holidays. I hope you're getting ready. I'll be spending some time with my family and myself. Uh, but in the meantime, stay safe out there. Keep up the fire for our democracy. And we'll see you next week.